stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hi again, folks, and welcome once again to another amazing episode of Forward Into the Past. I'm J.C. Rade, your host and narrator, and today we're going to pick up exactly where we left off last time in the Nick Carter mystery, The Call of Death, or Nick Carter's Clever Assistant. As I mentioned in the last episode, even though dime novels and story papers were looked down upon by members of high society, they were, in many ways, the only means to stories of vivid imagination by most members of the working classes. Now, you have to remember that even though there were many public libraries throughout most major cities, most working people had very little to no time to go to a library. And, even if they did, it was quite likely that whatever book they happened to have borrowed might have been stolen, pickpocketed, or straight-out pawned for cash, since most books at a library would have been donated by wealthy patrons and would have cost a pretty penny, considering that most printed books, with legitimate covers, would have cost anywhere from $1 to $2, quite a sum of money for a hard-working factory worker. Story papers cost maybe 5 or 10 cents, and dime novels, of course, could be had for 10 or 25 cents, a much more reasonable cost, and everyone had access to those at news vendor stands on almost every street in America. Now, it's quite extraordinary to realize that a new copy of a story paper was available almost every week, and within those eight pages were several complete stories in them. Every. Single. Week. The man behind the pseudonym of Nicholas or Chickering Carter, and I'm going to mess up this name, Frederick Van Rensselaer Day, wrote well over 1,000 Nick Carter mysteries all by himself. He churned out a 28,000-word story every week for years, and, believe it or not, he did not use a typewriter. He wrote every single one of those stories by hand, week after week. Amazing, isn't it? Now, it is said by many, that the Nick Carter character is directly responsible as the basis for the Pulp Comics superhero template, especially with his knack for arriving at the proper moment to capture the bad guys and save the day, as I mentioned in the last episode, which itself is a direct tie to Victorian storytelling, especially melodramas. And speaking of arriving at the right time, there is a phrase that is still in common use today when we speak of someone arriving at the best time possible, usually without a moment to spare. This phrase was definitely coined in the Victorian era and was more than likely influenced by our master detective's knack of dramatic triumph over evil. Of course, we still to this day say that someone who arrives at the last possible moment or manages to save the day when all things look bleak arrives in the nick of time. <laughs> yep, that's where we get that phrase. 
And, speaking of arriving in the nick of time, let's get on with our story. In the last episode, Harriet Farley, daughter of deceased millionaire Archibald Farley, has stopped Nick from joining in the investigation into the robbery of a bank in Westchester County. She proceeds to tell our master detective that the Reverend Austin Maybrick, the rector of St. Lawrence's Church, also in Westchester, has disappeared under suspicious circumstances. The Reverend, who is secretly engaged to Miss Farley, left the church grounds the night prior and has not returned. Just before he left, he was visited by an unknown veiled woman, who the Reverend Maybrick had an hour-long private conversation with in his library. Miss Farley suspects that the veiled woman might be Kate Crandall, a public stenographer who was making romantic advances to the Reverend and was highly upset when she found out that Reverend Maybrick and Miss Farley were actually engaged. Is Kate Crandall behind the Reverend's disappearance? And why did the Reverend withdraw $500 from his bank account? And who did he go see? Well, We'll find out more coming up in the next episode of The Call of Death or Nick Carter's Clever Assistant. Chapter 3 Unexpected Clues It was early afternoon when Nick Carter and Patsy arrived in the aristocratic suburb in which Harriet Farley dwelt and nearly under the towering walls of St. Lawrence's Church. Nick directed the chauffeur to stop, however, nearly a hundred yards from the sacred edifice. "'You must drop us here, Miss Farley, and return home,' said he. "'I will take your telephone number and talk with you later.' "'Why are you adverse to my going with you to the rectory?' she inquired with a look of surprise. "'Only because publicity is undesirable at present, if it can be prevented. "'And it may be of advantage to me if my investigations are not suspected,' Nick explained." If you were seen returning with two men after your visit this morning, curiosity might be aroused, and inquiries and comments would follow. Very well, Mr. Carter, in that case, Miss Farley said. But you must let me hear from you. I shall feel very anxious. I certainly will, Nick assured her while he alighted with Patsy. The limousine sped away, leaving the two detectives in a broad, beautifully shaded avenue, flanked on both sides with handsome dwellings, each occupying spacious and finely kept grounds, evincing the opulence and refinement of the residence. St. Lawrence's Church occupied a corner in the near distance. It was a handsome edifice, somewhat back from the avenue and flanked by a quiet side street, and Nick rightly inferred that the rectory, the home of the Reverend Austin Maybrick and his elderly housekeeper, was situated back of the church and fronted on the side street. We'll turn back to the corner, Patsy, and go through the side street, he remarked after briefly viewing the surroundings. That will, unless I am much mistaken, bring us to the rectory. I'm with you, said Patsy tritely. What do you make of the case, Chief? Does it look bad to you? Mm, quite so, replied Nick. I did not increase Miss Farley's anxiety by telling her so, but I think Maybrick is in wrong, if not up against a more desperate game than he can pull out of unaided. It looks so, Chief, for fair, said Patsy, who had been informed of Miss Farley's disclosures. I must find out, if possible, just what his relations with Kate Crandall have been, said Nick. Also, just what type of woman she is, and of what she is capable of. It's dollars to donuts that she figures in his mysterious absence. Miss Farley evidently is too proud to say just what she thinks of the woman. 
It's long odds that she's a bit fly and fancy, at least. Mm, quite likely, Nick allowed. There are some experiences, you know, that women reveal only in desperation spur. Unless driven to desperation, it is characteristic of their sex to be silent and bitterly nurse their resentment. When self-restraint ends, however, and desperation takes the ribbons, they go completely over the traces and to any extreme. That's true, Chief, said Patsy. Hell, it's said, has no fury like a woman scorned. I reckon, Chief, it was Kate Crandall who called on Maybrick Tuesday evening. That's an open question, said Nick. It is important that we shall find a correct answer to it. The fact that the veiled woman, whoever she was, remained alone with Maybrick in the library for an hour indicates that they were discussing a serious matter. Sure thing, Chief. Evidently, too, their interview led to his withdrawing the $500 from the bank the following morning. He may for some reason have agreed to pay her that amount. The fact that he departed with two empty suitcases, however, shows that he was expecting to receive something from her, or from persons with whom he evidently had an appointment. His carrying a revolver, moreover, which is quite extraordinary for a clergyman, indicates that he anticipated trouble. He may have got in much deeper than he expected. In over his head, Chief, I'm thinking, Patsy dryly vouchsafed. That now appears to be the size of it, Nick agreed. They had rounded a corner of the side street while speaking, and then were approaching the rectory. It stood on a plot of ground between the rear of the church and an attractive estate occupied by a handsome wooden dwelling. Both were somewhat back from the street, and an iron picket fence divided the two estates. As he was approaching the end of this fence where it met the sidewalk, Nick recalled what Harriet Farley had said about Kate Crandall playing the spy near the rectory. He paused to view the adjoining grounds. They would have offered concealment for such a spy, and Nick's impression proved profitable. This way, Patsy, for a moment, he said quietly. He saw that there was no path at that point leading to the rear of the house. The close-cut greensward showed faint footprints nevertheless, and Nick walked into the ground some twenty yards, carefully inspecting a narrow flowerbed that ran parallel to and near the fence for a considerable distance. He found not exactly what he was seeking, but of the same character. He discovered several footprints in the dark soil of the flowerbed, at a point nearly back of the rectory and some thirty feet from it. Contrary to Nick's expectations, however, the imprints evidently had been caused by the shoes of men. By Jove, this opens a new field for conjecture, said he, calling Patsy's attention to them. We have heard nothing about male spies in this locality, only about the Crandall woman. Gee, that's right, Chief, but these are men's tracks, said Patsy, eagerly inspecting them. Undoubtedly, said Nick. There evidently were two of them. Note the two different sizes. Also, that the depth of the soles is greater than the heels, and that parts of each overlap themselves, all showing plainly enough that the two men were crouching here and evidently watching something, or someone, through the picket fence. Sure thing. There are no prints in any other part of the flower bed. There certainly were two men, Patsy, one of medium build, the other quite a large man, judging from the size of their shoes, Nick went on. Through this shrubbery in the rectory yard, they could see only the rear and one side of the house, including the end of the veranda and the conservatory. I get you, Chief, said Patsy. Whomever they were watching must have been in that locality. 
There is nothing specially distinctive in these imprints, however, aside from suggesting the size of the men, Nick added. We'll keep them in mind, nevertheless, while looking farther. Looking where, chief? In the rectory grounds, said Nick. If watching a person in the house, they would have selected a nearer point. It's a safe wager, then, that they were watching someone outside of the rectory. Gee, that's right, too, said Patsy, quick to see the point. Well, let's have a look. We'll go out and enter through the gate. We may slip a cog if we try to scale these iron pickets. I believe you. They're as sharp as a trooper's lance. Nick led the way to the street and to the gate entering the rectory grounds. The housekeeper had not put in an appearance, and they proceeded around the veranda to that side of the dwelling visible from the adjoining estate. Carefully inspecting the ground in the meantime, Nick soon discovered evidence confirming his suspicions. He found, as before, in fact, more evidence than he was expecting. In some yielding earth between one side of the conservatory and the bend of the library window, a space of about eight feet, were numerous footprints obviously caused by the shoes of two women who had recently been there. The impressions were very unlike each other. One was that of a slender shoe with a small long heel that had sunk deep into the soft soil. The other was larger and broader, with spreading soles and wide heels, generally known as common-sense heels. Crouching to carefully inspect all of these impressions, Nick made other discoveries, from which he drew several important deductions. "'By Jove, this is still more curious,' he remarked, after a moment. "'What's that, Chief?' questioned Patsy, bending nearer. Two women have recently been here instead of only one.' The location of some of the tracks indicate that they came to spy through the library window and play the eavesdropper. It might have been in the evening, therefore, for they would have been seen in daylight. Surely. Ah, here are several bruised blades of grass broken off by them and trodden into the soil, Nick added, picking up a couple of them. They are too dry and wilted for it to have occurred as recently as last evening, yet they are fresh and green enough to show that it could not have been much longer ago. We can safely say, night before last. The evening when the veiled woman visited Maybrick. Exactly. Gee, you must be right, Chief, though it's fine figuring. Hmm. Here's another curious point, Patsy. Namely, the two women, if their shoes have any significance, would have a decidedly opposite class, said Nick. One wore a narrow, high-heeled shoe, denoting a woman of fashion and means. The heels of the other were broad, both badly worn, and there was a patch on one of the soles. The patch has left its mark in some of these imprints, and the run-down condition of both heels appears in the indentations left by them. I see, said Patsy. It's as plain as twice two. This woman must be of an opposite class, then, from the other. She wears patched shoes, with the heels half gone, indicating that she cannot afford new ones. That's a sane and safe deduction, Chief, surely. Ah, here is evidence warranting still another. How so? Note that all the imprints of the high-heeled shoes overlap and partly obliterate those of the cheaper one, Nick pointed out. Plainly, then, the wearer of the former was here later than the other. They were not here together. Moreover, all their tracks would not have been so intermingled. I see the point, Chief. As near as I can now size it up. The poorer-clad woman, if her garments corresponded with her shoes, arrived here before the other, and she may have been the veiled woman who talked with Maybrick. 
The other may have seen her, or suspected that she was in the library with Maybrick, and she may have come here to watch them and overhear what has passed between them. And the two men beyond the picket fence may have been watching both. Mm, I think so. Gee whiz, Patsy said perplexedly. All this increases the mix-up, Chief, for fair. Decidedly, Nick agreed. Why were two men and two women here? Can one of them have been the Crandall woman? Well, I'm going to find out a little later, said Nick a bit grimly. We first will have a talk with Mrs. Soule, however, and see what we can discover in the house. Miss Farley, though a bright and brainy girl, may have overlooked something. Nick led the way to the rectory door and rang the bell. He was admitted by Mrs. Soule, to whom he introduced Patsy and himself, and whom he found to be an elderly, gracious woman of sixty, burdened with anxiety concerning the missing rector, and eager to do all in her power to aid the detectives. But she could add nothing to what she had already told Harriet Farley, as imparted to Nick, nor give the latter the slightest clue to the mystery. She could describe the rector's veiled visitor only as a woman of about Kate Crandall's height and figure, and had not observed whether she was well or rather poorly clad. She stated that the woman had merely asked whether Mr. Maybrick was at home and would see a lady for a short time, and that the rector had received her in his library. "'Are you sure that she spoke of herself as a lady?' Nick inquired. "'She did not say woman, did she?' "'No, sir,' Mrs. Soule insisted. "'I am positive that lady is the word she used.' It was significant only in that Nick aimed to definitely learn, if possible, which of the two women suspected of having been spying outside had an interview with Maybrick, if either of the two. A search in the rector's desk, moreover, brought to light nothing explaining his absence other than the revolver case mentioned by Miss Farley. A crayon portrait on an easel, however, showed Maybrick to be a splendidly built, striking type of man, with a strong, smoothly shaved face, a classic cast of features, and, obviously, a man of sterling character and extraordinary mental vigor. Nick lingered only to direct Mrs. Soule to do nothing about the matter, but to answer inquiries by stating that Mr. Maybrick was away for a few days, and the two detectives then departed. There was a look of increasing determination on Nick's strong, clean-cut face, however, when they walked away and rounded a corner of St. Lawrence's Church. "'I'm going to find that woman, Patsy, or lose a leg in the attempt,' he said bluntly. "'I'm with you, Chief,' Patsy quickly declared. "'We'll begin with getting Kate Crandall's measure,' Nick added. "'Miss Farley told me that she has an office in the business section. "'I will pay her a visit and see how she lines up. "'Am I to go with you?' "'You are to remain outside,' said Nick. "'I may decide not to expose my hand, "'which would be to our disadvantage "'if she really is responsible for Maybrick's absence.' Mm, that's right, too. It may be necessary to shadow her, moreover. So you had better stick round outside and await my instructions. There will be something doing, I think, after I have interviewed this woman. Two sets of footprints. Whose are they? And what were those men and women doing spying on the Reverend? Which one is responsible for his disappearance? And is Kate Crandall actually the veiled woman? We'll find out when Nick interviews her in the next episode of The Call of Death or Nick Carter's Clever Assistant. Hi again, folks. Once again, a sincere word of thanks to all of you wonderful listeners out there. 
I am so very glad that you are enjoying this series, and believe me, I am getting quite a kick out of it too. Now, a bit of news. Now, due to the various circumstances that led up to the tremendous delay in episode release, for the next several chapters, there will not be any historical anecdotes preceding the story. Just a quick hello, the storyline update, and then into the new chapter. The Halloween stories are coming up quick, and I want to have enough time to share them with you all before the end of October. Soon afterwards will be some Christmas-themed stories to end the year, and then beginning in January, I'll start again with another Nick Carter mystery. Well, that's it for now, folks. As always, thanks for listening, keep sharing the stories, and be a good human. Bye for now.